So we want to look mainly at the work of Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts. Um, we, we, we call it a history of the early Christadelphians, or as, as Greg has said, the pioneer work of the early Christadelphians. It's a, it's a fascinating story, really. We've just read from Psalm 139, where David is acknowledging the fact that whatever he does, wherever he goes, uh, God is present. And, and that's what Brother Thomas learned, uh, particularly in the early part of this, uh, this presentation. So we're going to be looking at uh, those three books mainly. That's where I've got most of my information from. And uh, Dr. Thomas's Life and Works by, by Robert Roberts. And then there's those two um, smaller books from the Christadelphian Scripture Study Service, one on the life of John Thomas, the other on, on the life of Robert Roberts. So all the quotes are from one of those three books as we, as we go through. So we start with Brother Thomas, obviously. We say here he was born in London uh, in 1805. His father was also John Thomas. He was a pastor, uh, as we shall see, for several independent churches. Uh, John's father was someone who didn't like to let the grass grow under his feet. He was always moving around from one job to another and from one place to another as well. So we, we, really, we need to begin with a map of the British Isles to see where they went in the first few years of John's life. We've read already he was born in London. By the time John was five years of age, they were up in Aberdeenshire, a place called Huntley, because his father had taken up a, a post in a church there. Not always the same church even. He moved around from one church to another. Uh, by the time John was eight, they were back down near London again at Clapham. So we begin to see that um, by the time he was 13, they were in Richmond. By the time he was 15, they were at Chorley in, in Lancashire. Let's just slow down a bit there. Uh, because we find out that, first of all, that was the house that they lived in. And we say, it looks a bit more like a mansion than a house, doesn't it? Surely it was, the property was owned by the church because the church was very, very wealthy in those days. There's no way they, they could have been buying and selling houses everywhere they moved. So John, John Thomas, uh, was was living there for not for very long really but it was there where he began his studies as a private surgeon he wanted to be a surgeon a doctor and a surgeon and it was when he was in Chorley that he began under a private surgeon by the time John was 16 and that's another 18 months or so the family are on the move again they're going down to London but John stays to continue his medical studies at that time. So from now on, John is away from the family. And it's interesting to note that within a year, John had resigned membership of the church. His focus was on becoming a doctor and a surgeon. So it's almost as though he's had enough of the church with his father moving around and 
he, he wants to concentrate on just that one thing. He does actually end up in London eventually to complete his studies uh, there at St Thomas's Hospital, uh, as we can see just across the River Thames from the Houses of Parliament. So that's where John qualified um, in anatomy and in surgery. And then his father uh, comes into the story again. When John was 26, his father now was not content with moving around Britain. He, he had what John called emigration fever, and he wanted to go to America, where the restoration movement was, was in full swing. There were many small groups in America and in Britain as well at that time, uh, breaking away from, from the main churches. John decides to go to America as well. In fact, he decides he will go before the rest of the family so they can kind of spy out the land and find somewhere for them to, to, to live. So he boards this boat, the Marquis of Wellesley, uh, and he's acting as doctor and surgeon for almost 100 people, uh, 70 passengers and 19 crew. And all's well so far until we read that foul weather sets in for two weeks. The ship was blown 250 miles off course. It actually ended up off the coast of Canada and they were supposed to be going to New York. We read there also that the winds were so strong that eventually the, the main mast literally snapped off and carrying many of the, much of the sails with it. We begin to realise that this was not just um, a storm, the same as any other storm. That storm was there for a reason, and providence was at work here. The angels obviously organised this storm, as we shall see, because it was to concentrate John Thomas's mind on things religious once again. We read that the sea carried everything movable from the deck, and the ship was tossed around. And eventually it ran aground off a place called Sable Island, 100 miles off Nova Scotia, where the boat was moving up and down, banging on the bottom on the sandbanks. And as it says there, it struck horror into both the passengers and the crew. So this was quite a, a storm that they were in, uh, going through here. Apparently, there was one hysterical passenger who was saying we're going to go down to the bottom and John's remark was that we're already at the bottom because they were banging on, on these sandbanks. We think of the Apostle Paul who was in a similar situation like this uh, when he was on his uh, voyage to Rome wasn't he and as it says there in Acts 27 verse 20 all hope that we should be saved was taken away and it was a similar situation for those on the Marquis of Wellesley. The difference being of course the Apostle Paul could say for there stood by me this night the angel of God whose I am and whom I serve. John Thomas was not able to do that 
In fact, there was no one on the boat that was able to say things like that. John was basically ignorant about things religious, despite the fact that his father was a pastor. So we read that it was at this point he concluded the best thing he can do as the waves came closing over him was to go to the bottom with a prayer on his lips, Lord have mercy upon me for Christ's sake. That's about all he could muster up from what he knew uh, about the Bible and about God. But it was at that time when he decided he didn't want to be in a situation like this ever again. What happens at death? It was playing on his mind. And he decided that if he did get ashore, he wouldn't rest until he found the truth of the matter about life after death. And of course, we know that he was, he was true to that. Thinking of the Apostle Paul, it's recorded of him, he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And John Thomas, we believe, was also a chosen vessel. We say he was neither infallible, neither did he have the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul did. But we believe he was a chosen vessel to, on earth, we say, saving truth in the midst of the apostate religions of the world at that time. The apostate religion to Christendom, that is. Just thinking about the qualities of John Thomas, uh, let's just go through some of them. We say, number one, he had above average intelligence. And that's quite obvious when you start reading his works. He was a very learned man. Uh, we say he was to develop, he didn't have it at this stage, but he was to develop an awesome respect for the word of God. And it was this that was going to change his life. Furthermore, he had the courage to implement that word in the face of opposition. And that, that's another skill that's necessary or was necessary in the position that he was in. He was not prepared to compromise any aspect of that word. Such was his love for it. And finally, we say he was a man of vision with the determination to see his mission completed to the best of his ability. But it's this number two, which is so important. As we've said already, it was this was, that was to shape his life when he was driven to read the word of God, to think about it carefully. And that's the story of the next few years, really. We say that his brushless death was a necessary uh, part to concentrate his mind on the important issues about life after death. And it was this storm that did that. You see, scripture tells us, doesn't it, that man that is in honour and understands not is no different to the beasts that perish. And had John Thomas stayed in that state of mind, he would have perished uh, sooner or later. But the story unfolds in a different direction, doesn't it? Well, this is where the boat was uh, driven, or almost driven aground. A place called Sable Island, 
This is an ancient map, and we know what it's called. Graveyard of the Atlantic. If we enlarge the part of the map which shows the island, that's it there. And all these um, names all around the island are names of boats which have been wrecked off that island. Uh, as we say on the screen there, 140 known wrecks between 1800 and 1840, that's three every year. And they are the known wrecks. Uh, and this is where John, John Thomas was taken to... Um, we read in, or uh, we sing in that hymn sometimes, don't we? God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And this was happening at this time. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-fading skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So, so far in the story, John Thomas knows that he's got to find out the truth about life after death. Yeah. Um, then we've enlarged the map a little bit, and we can see that the shipwreck information was obtained from Lloyds of London, uh, along with various newspapers, uh, Canadian newspapers. So the boat has to go from Sable Island 250 miles to New York. I don't know how they did that. Uh, I understand that they didn't charter another boat. They did it in that boat, which in itself is an amazing feat, isn't it? With no main sail and the boat is damaged and it's taking on water. But nevertheless, they, they arrived at destination, New York. And when he gets on land, he quickly comes into contact with this man, Alexander Campbell. He was the leader of one of these sects that we mentioned earlier on, the Campbellites. And it's interesting how this man viewed John Thomas. We read here, on a certain Sunday, shortly after the doctor's arrival at Bethany, he went with Mr. Campbell to Wellsburg, where the latter had a preaching appointment. On the way to the meeting in the afternoon, Mr. Campbell, who had spoken in the morning, said to Dr. Thomas that he should call upon him to speak that afternoon. The doctor, somewhat surprised, told him that he must not do that by any means. He'd never spoken in public on religious matters, and furthermore, he would have nothing to say if he did get up. And what's the reply from Alexander Campbell? He replied, that didn't matter. He would certainly call upon him, for he liked to try a man's mettle. You see, Campbell could see that John Thomas was not the run-of-the-mill sort of person. He realised he got the ability to speak and to, and to address people and to interest them. So they go to um, this place and we read that when they arrived, Dr. Thomas took up his Bible and began to turn over leaves in search of something as a foundation for his remarks. He went from one end to the other and was able to find nothing. When eventually he remembered that he could 
uh, say something about Rollins' interpretation of Daniel's four empires, which we know as Daniel chapter two, don't we? And the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and how Daniel interpreted that. So that's what he spoke on, on that occasion. The congregation was so impressed that they said, you've got to speak next week. That was interesting. So he does that. He speaks the next week uh, about apostasy. He'd obviously heard uh, Alexander Campbell speaking about that. But as soon as that was over, John Thomas says, well, I'm off now. He didn't want to get entangled in this work, which he thought, first of all, he was utterly unqualified and which was utterly opposed to his tastes. He says, I'm off to uh, Baltimore by way of Washington in Pennsylvania, thinking that he'll get away from these people. He still wanted to know what the Bible said about life after death. So we can see what was at the back of his mind. Let's go somewhere where they don't know me, right, and I'll, I'll, I can continue listening on a Sunday to what they have to say. He went 300 miles. He went far, didn't he, to get away from those people that knew him now and knew that he could speak. But read at Somerset Courthouse, the Campbellites requested him to settle among them as their preacher. You see, Bush Telegraph was in operation, um, as it often is with the Christadelphians nowadays. But Dr. Thomas said he would not entertain this for a moment. His object was not to become a preacher, but to get into medical practice. That's, that's what he was doing in America. He told them this, and he says, well, I'm going to Baltimore next, because he'd, he'd understood that at Baltimore, there was an intelligent congregation and they could do the speaking, he could do the listening, and throughout the week he, get, he could get on with his medical studies. Well, Baltimore, it was another well over 100 miles he's travelled. When he arrived at Baltimore, to his dismay, he was at once asked to address the congregation. He wished to decline, but they would take no denial. You see, word was getting around that this man is a very interesting speaker, and they wanted to hear him. So eventually he asked to speak. Having heard him, they would be satisfied by nothing short of taking a public call and calling the public together to hear the new preacher. The hall was engaged for a week, and for every night of that week, the doctor addressed the public on the ancient faith, which he considered to be the faith promulgated by Mr. Campbell. So we can see what's happening here, can't we? He's being driven to speak about the word of life, and in the process, he's having to look at it in a bit of detail so that it's got something to say. Well, after a week's stay at Baltimore, he determined to break away from this preaching career which was being forced upon him. He told his Baltimore friends he must be off to see Philadelphia before going on to Richmond, and that was his ultimate destination. So he's off to Philadelphia. Well, said Brother Carmen, I'll give you a letter of introduction to Brother Hazlitt, who is the deacon 
with the congregation in Philadelphia. You can stay with him. And John Thomas was thinking, well, it was a bit of a quandary here. Um, on the one hand, it would be good to have someone to go to. But on the other hand, he didn't want to get further embroiled in this preaching. So eventually decides, all right, we'll go along with that. But as we see there, though without not some misgiving to the, as to the consequences, he feared that he was going to end up speaking there as well. So now he's in Philadelphia. On arriving there, he found Deacon Hathlet, who expressed great satisfaction as to him having come, saying they wanted someone to speak to them and to be relieved of the tediousness of their meetings, as Brother Ballantyne, their main speaker, was very old and very dry. They wanted someone to liven things up a bit for them, give them something interesting to listen to. So he was gassed with Brother Hazlitt and he could do nothing other than yield to their request. So for a further three weeks, further three Sundays, he's speaking to them. At the end of that time, they proposed that he should remain among them altogether, promising that they would do their best to get him a practice if he would speak to them on Sundays. So he decides to go along with this. If they're going to help me get a, a, a medical practice, I'll speak to them on Sundays. Uh, he thought that was quite a bargain, really, because I can spend the rest of the week in my medical practices. Um, we read in the writings of Brother Roberts here, he says, the prospect of a settlement in his own profession disposed him to fall in line with a suggestion, which after consideration he did. The arrangement did not work favorably for the doctor's professional object, although conducing highly to the work which Providence had assigned to him. So let's just summarize things so far. He suffered a near shipwreck to impress on his mind the need to find out the truth about life after death. He'd resisted on every occasion without success, at least nine times, maybe more, a request to speak about the word of life, which he had to do. And so he must have given at least 16 addresses from what we've looked at so far, requiring preparation from scripture. And what do we read? The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. And so John Thomas gradually was learning what the word of God was all about, what was in the Bible. As his understanding of scripture grew, he realized that when he was first baptized, now 15 years ago, he was ignorant of some of the key teachings of scripture. So he decided it needed to be baptized again, which he did. Because what does scripture say after all? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It doesn't just say he that is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. 
and he realised it. He didn't believe. In fact, he was uh, quite ignorant about many of the important aspects of the teaching of Scripture. So he was baptised again in 1847. Now, it was this, along with other issues, that led to him parting company with Alexander Campbell. Um, John Thomas had got dozens of questions which they couldn't answer. So this was another problem. And eventually, when he was rebaptized, uh, they actually parted company. It was at that stage where he married Ellen Hunt, who he describes as a suitable and a loyal help. They were blessed with a daughter, Eusebia Jane, who became a sister in Christ. And we read about Ellen Hunt. The type of life the doctor subsequently lived placed tremendous strain upon his wife. Why he was never in, it was always out preaching. She was handicapped. I don't know exactly how she was handicapped, but she viewed her husband's work as more important than her womanly needs. In fact, on one occasion, she said, the doctor belongs to the people and was not much of a woman's man. So she was loyal enough to go along with that. Most, most wives would not, would they? But she was. Just moving quickly, other key events while he was in America for the first time, he started editing uh, two magazines. First of all, The Apostolic Advocate and then Herald of the Coming Age. Problems getting these printed, he set up his own little printing business so that he could get them printed. He even became a farmer at one stage because his income from the doctor's work was not very good. And he thought, well, maybe farming will bring in more income. And then there was this break from Campbell's, and this is what he said at the time. If wrong, get it right. When righted, defend the right. Maintain the right and overthrow the wrong, or perish in the attempt. We say, why did he say that, or perish in the attempt? It was prepared to do that, because he knew by now that many had perished in the attempt to defend that which was right, according to the scripture. And we're thinking about the Dark Ages when the, the Roman Catholic Church held sway and many lost their lives or were tortured because they wanted to maintain to the truth of Scripture. So we've mentioned already is preaching, and there's just one example of the sort of hall that he would preach at um, at that time. Moving on, we come to 1848, and he decides to go back to Britain to see if he can open up the, the gospel anymore to the people of Britain. He goes, first of all, to London and then to Nottingham. He goes to the Campbellites, but now it's a different story, you see. 
they refused him platform both in London and in Nottingham. But while I was in Nottingham, the Millerites, right, this is another group, heard of the Campbellite refusal and welcomed me to speak at their hall in Radford. Interestingly enough, just down the road from Forest Road, where the uh, Christie's Offings meet now. So once he'd spoken there, it opened a door. He said, the door thus opened, no man afterwards able was, was able to shut. Millerism in Nottingham introduced Brother Thomas to Millerism in Derby, Birmingham, Plymouth, at each of which he was heard by large audiences, while Campbellism took him by the hand in Lincoln and Newark. So things were beginning to take off now. It wasn't twos and threes listening anymore. It was literally hundreds of and sometimes thousands who listened to him. This is what he said at that time in a letter that he compiled to the Campbellites. I think it was in Nottingham. We can't go through the whole of this, but it's almost like a statement of faith, isn't it? It says, I believe and teach that the scriptures of the prophets and apostles are able of themselves to make men wise unto salvation. And whatever is not according to these ought not to be received. And this is why he was uh, at odds with the Campbellites on a number of issues. He says, I believe in the promises made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, in their literal fulfilment. I believe that the kingdom spoken of by Daniel and the prophets, which will soon be set up by the God of heaven upon the ruins and states and empires. He says, I believe that the Son of Man is to possess this kingdom and the dominion of the globe, but that he was first to be a sufferer, become obedient to death, rise from among the dead, lead captivity captive, sit at the right hand of the Ancient of Days until the time comes to set up the kingdom. You see, he got a good grasp of what scripture was teaching, hadn't he? He says, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is this prophetic sufferer and glorious king of men and son and anointed son of God and the great captain to lead many to salvation. It is, I believe, that the gospel comprehends the things concerning this promised kingdom and not or, but and the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ, not just about Jesus Christ, but the kingdom and the name. And that he gets that from the Acts of the Apostles. That's, they went everywhere preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Well, it'd be nice to go through the whole of this, but we don't really have time to do that. This is what he says at the end of that document. He says, these things I believe and teach as the doctrines of the word. If you can prove from that word that a single item is not there, I will renounce it. If I can prove them, will you be equally candid and receive them? And that surely is the way that Christadelphians have been ever since the days of John Thomas. Sadly, things are slipping a bit now, aren't they? But uh, by and large, that's the way we operate. 
Just a comment on a visit to Glasgow. We read here that he gave four lectures at the City Hall, which holds 5,000 people. And Brother Thomas records, not Brother Roberts records, sorry, that on the final night, multitudes could not gain entry. And this gives us an idea of the sort of people who were interested in what he was saying. A lot of them were interested in what he was saying about prophecy. And they would not let him go until he promised to write in, put in writing what he'd been saying to them. And that resulted in the publication of the book Elpis Israel, a book which has been responsible for, for countless thousands to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, it goes back to America. In fact, he went back to America twice after this. Uh, let's think about the, the American Civil War for a moment, because it became necessary to di distinguish the believers from other sects as they were conscientious objectors in the war. The last thing he wanted was for them to be called Thomasites. We've got Campbellites and Millerites and various others. He doesn't want to be seen as the leader of this group of people. So he coins the name, as we know, Christadelphian from two Greek words, Christo and Adelphos, which means brethren in Christ. Brethren, of course, means brothers and sisters. It was when Brother Thomas was preparing for his third visit to Britain that he became ill and fell asleep in Christ. It was a particularly painful death. We won't, we won't look at the details of it. Here's what was written on his tombstone. Here lies in brief repose, waiting the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven, John Thomas, MB, who is the author of Elpis Israel, Eureka, Anatoly, Anastasis, Phanerosis, and other works in which he demonstrated the unscriptural character of popular Christianity and made manifest the nature of the long-lost faith of the Jews. That's why his first book was Elpis Israel, the hope of Israel. It says, during a busy lifetime by mouth and pen, he contended earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints and at his death left behind him as a result of his labours, a body of people in different parts of the world, known as the Christadelphians, to continue the work begun. And if we do our sums there, he never reached his three score years and ten. Well, that's Brother Thomas. He, we say here, rediscovered Bible truth. He didn't discover it, he rediscovered it. It had been lost. Uh, for a long period of time. It was Jesus who said to the Jews, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And John Thomas fully understood this. This is what he said. Do that which is right. Be valiant for the truth. Teach it without compromise, and all lovers of truth will approve you, because it's the truth that can make us free.
free from the bondage of sin and death. Well, let's move on now to Brother Roberts. We say another exceptional man who continued the work begun. Uh, Robert Roberts had a, a very different upbringing to, to John Thomas. Uh, that's where he was brought up. Uh, Link Street in Aberdeen. Typical uh, Scottish tenements. You see, that doorway is not the doorway to a three-storey house. That doorway is the door is to two houses on the ground level, two more on the second level, and two more on the third level. So very humble beginnings in comparison with, with Brother Thomas, but that mattered not, did it? Robert Roberts first heard John Thomas speak in the John Street Chapel, still there, at the age of 10. But he just slept through most of the lecture and was glad when it was all over. Apparently, there's only one thing that impressed Robert Roberts about John Thomas, and that was his beard. He determined that when he grew up, he would have a beard as well. But not long after that, his mother took him to attend Baptist meeting, which he described as six months of tormented experience. What were they saying? How can we square what they were saying with the word of God? And so we called it tormented experience. And then he read this magazine, Herald of the Kingdom of Coming Age. He says, I expected the usual kind of religious reading. But lo, I was startled. I was awakened. I was filled with new joy. The power of the article lay in its argument. I became a voracious lead reader of it and an exciting reader of it and the Bible. He said, it appealed to his intellect, not to his emotions. And that's the thing, isn't it? He said the Bible appeals to our intellect. We need to understand its message uh, before we begin to get emotionally involved at all. That's what the Apostle Paul did. As his manner was, he went in unto them three Sabbath days and reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Opening, which means to open thoroughly what had been closed, and alleging to set before them that Christ must need have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And that's what uh, John Thomas was doing in these books that, um, that Robert Roberts was writing, these magazines that Robert Roberts was reading. So all these buildings in Aberdeen are still there, actually. That's where he first began attending the meeting room in what was known as the, the Brethren in the Wallace Tower. It was at that time he was given a copy of Elpis Israel. He says, I could not have been happier. I was overjoyed. He understood its main message and took a mental note of its more difficult matters. So... This was very important to him. He was beginning to know what the truth of Scripture was all about. At age 14, he was baptised in the River Dee. When he was 15, he compiled what we know as the Bible Companion, 
And it's still there in the front of the Bible companion, isn't it? What he said. Salvation depends upon the assimilation of the mind to the divine ideas, principles and affections exhibited in the scriptures. The infallible advice then to every man and woman anxious about their salvation is read the scriptures daily. It is only in proportion as this is done that success may be looked for. When, it, when Robert Roberts was 17, he wrote this letter to uh, Brother Thomas, who at this stage was still in America. And this began a close bond between the two of them. Robert Roberts gave his first talk in Aberdeen when he was 18. Interesting the subject, isn't it? Same, same as John Thomas. Daniel's vision of the four empires and the common kingdom of God. When he was 19, he met Jane Norrie. And his words again, he says, I was drawn to her with a power that ended in the closest intimacy. Her tastes were all in the line of intellectual, intellectual and spiritual things. So this was kindred spirits coming together, wasn't it? She was a bit like the Bereans, who searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. So at eight, when John, when Robert Roberts was 20, they marry. And this is typical. They have seven children, four die in infancy. Two daughters accept the truth, Eusebia and Sarah Jane. The same year they moved to Huddersfield, where Robert Roberts took up this uh, post as a journalist with the Huddersfield Examiner, a newspaper which is still on the go. A comment from Brother Arslick Collier here. He says, Robert Roberts was experiencing a heavy storm in the Atlantic when on his way to bury John Thomas. He was perfectly satisfied that whatever happened would be right. Would the storm take them or would it not? He was quite happy. Whatever happened, it would be right. It would be God's will. He said, if God had work for them to perform, they would be preserved. But he didn't think that their life was necessary uh, to continue that work. Uh, even in those early days, he was quite ready for that dreamless sleep which would so hasten the final judgment. And there's an example, is it not, for us to follow. You see, it's, it's the life to come which is important and we have to do whatever we can in the service of the Lord. But he decides, he will decide the right time when we're to be taken away for judgment. But he moves to Birmingham, and there's one example of a public debate. Look at the crowds again. Hundreds of them coming to listen to the, a public debate. And not just in the public, but lecturing in places like, well, that's the Birmingham Town Hall, isn't it? And Robert Roberts 
took up the mantle, as it were, from John Thomas in this preaching. There's some books written by Robert Roberts. We won't go through them all. And also booklets. Perhaps we can just highlight two. Christendom Astray. Another book responsible for many people coming to a knowledge of the truth. I did this talk in Coventry and there was a brother in the audience who said that's the book that brought him to the truth. The other interesting uh, publication here is the Ecclesial Guide, something which Ecclesiastes still use because the wisdom that's contained in that Ecclesial Guide is flawless really, or as flawless as, as it possible to get uh, with humans. So for the next 40 years, Robert Roberts continued the work. He was editor, first of the Herald and then the Christadelphian magazine, lecturing tours around Britain, two trips to Australia, dealing with false teachers and division, and all these things took their toll on him, helping to care for, for poorer brethren and sisters. All done, wanted a full-time job. And it's amazing how uh, these uh, individuals worked at that time tirelessly to bring the gospel to as many people as possible. We read that the pressure took his toll and became weary, but they continued with the work. In 1898, while in, in Tour of America, he suddenly fell asleep in Christ. I understand he was to speak at the meeting that day. He was sitting at his desk, just going over his notes, and it must have been a heart attack. They found him slumped over the desk, asleep waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is on his tombstone. Here lies Robert Roberts of Birmingham, England, editor of the Christadelphian, author of Christendom Australia and many other works, who for 40 <laughs> years in the front ranks of the Christadelphians aided and continued the work begun by Dr. Thomas, by whose side he now sleeps in Jesus. And once again, if you do the sums, he never reached his three score and ten. But he tirelessly worked. So we say here, four dedicated servants to whom we owe so much. It's two teams, really, wasn't it? First of all, apostolic truth rediscovered. And then ecclesial organization introduced. And we conclude with one or two passages from the book of Revelation. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Or again in chapter 19, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we pray that 
they will be there and we pray don't we that we will be caught up the marriage supper of the lamb as well Thank you.